Welcome to episode 14 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my guest for today is Joe Berkowitz. He's an opinion columnist at Fast Company and the author of American Cheese, an indulgent odyssey through the artisan cheese world. Joe wrote a piece about how it's time for the media to start dealing with Trump for what he actually is, not a politician, but a fringe cult leader. And the film we're going to be talking about today is a found footage horror movie called The Sacrament, which is a depiction of the Jonestown Massacre, only it's been fictionalized, set in the present day, and is presented as a documentary from Vice News. We'll be talking about the problems with found footage films, the mistakes they commonly make, and of course, we're going to have to talk about the inevitable Donald Trump-Jim Jones comparisons a little bit. From Minneapolis, Joe, welcome to Junk Filter. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for having me. I guess the idea for this movie is kind of like a um, an elevator pitch. What if a news organization like Vice had been around during the Jonestown massacre? Yeah, it's just funny. They, they never come right out and say it, but we have to assume that this is a world where Jonestown never happened. So society in the 2010s uh, would still have uh, an opening for this kind of thing to happen and had just had never seen anything like it before, I guess. You guys ready? Watch it. We've been to some of the most chaotic, war-torn places in the world, but never for something as bizarre as this. Here we are. Welcome to Eden Parish. You guys built all this? Father had a vision, and we built heaven here on Earth. Who is Father? He's the guy that started all of this. Can we speak with him at some point? He agreed to sit for an interview tonight at the gathering. Found footage movies have a... um, they, They have this conceit that it's something that is being presented to us in a different genre, I guess is one way of describing it. How would you describe found footage as a genre? Well, yeah, it's interesting that you say uh, about um, it could be a different genre uh, because I've noticed that as found footage has gone along, there have been a lot of movies that have, you know, that have tried to take it to a different place. You know, there's been, I mean, at least in horror, there have been uh, zombie found footage movies uh, like Quarantine and uh, the uh, Spanish language movie that inspired it, Wreck. There have been uh, disaster horror like Cloverfield. There have been superhero with horror-ish undertones, which is Chronicle. And um, I think I've even seen uh, an exorcism movie. The uh, Yeah, The Taking of Deborah Logan was that. So, yeah, they've tried to push it in every direction. But the I think just the general way to describe it is just any movie where, yeah, we're, we're finding... Uh, Jesus, I almost just said we're finding footage, and that's what, no. But we're finding the remnants of somebody's broken narrative. You know, it's not polished, it's not put together. Um, So we are seeing uh, every, what they, the the people who filmed it wouldn't want us to see. You know, we're seeing uh, the entire story and the backstory at once, um, in some cases, I guess, at least. Yeah, like a film like Cloverfield has a framing device that this is an official record of a monster attack on New York. 
that's mm-hmm. uh, presented to us as some government document or something, right? Like government evidence. Yeah, yeah. There uh, is almost always a, a conceit beyond just somebody has a camera and is recording. And, you know, uh, I guess the, yeah, the major problem with these movies is uh, a lot of times is that uh, the conceit they start out with is untenable by the end of it. Uh, most commonly, there's always a point where you as the audience member are like, why in the world would anyone be filming in this situation right now? You're being chased, you know, or you just killed someone or you just almost got killed. The last thing you'd be doing is filming. Um, there have been some really clever ways to get around that. And I think, you know, the classic, uh, found footage movie, you know, Blair Witch, I think that has had one of the most uh, clever ways to get around that, which is if they're filming, then they can't really be in danger. It's like a layer, like it's like a firewall from the situation really closing in on them. So even though they know that they're totally fucked, they're in the woods, the Blair Witch is a real thing, something at least is a real malevolent presence that is, you know, coming after them. But they keep filming because they don't know what else to do. But if they're filming, at least they're on task. And uh, so, yeah, that's one where I think it works. But it doesn't always work that way. I always get taken out of the movie when I watch a found footage movie because I keep thinking about the process of editing this thing together. (laughs) My problem with most of them was I would be asking myself, who was the sadist who decided to turn all this evidence (laughs) into entertainment (laughs) yeah if it's a video of like an experiment gone wrong in a laboratory or something like that then who was the sadist that edited together all the deaths and murders and put music over it exactly it's there's always the question of why are we seeing this who who is presenting this to us and um yeah uh we we don't have to get into the sacrament just yet but that was after watching it, I was thinking about that too. Um, why Why isn't this evidence in a courtroom? Why are we watching it? Why are there title cards? Why is there three paragraphs describing what what Vice is as the opening of the movie? But um, yeah. Cloverfield is pretty effective most of the way through because it actually does feel like you're watching raw video. It doesn't seem all that staged, even with some familiar faces. It starts to get implausible when they're still filming while this giant monster is wreaking havoc. Mm-hmm. But the yeah. feeling of the impending dread is is pretty well uh, put across, I think, in that film. Yeah, uh, they had a huge budget to work with. We're talking, you know, Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams there. So they could afford to get good effects in. And uh, bad effects in a found footage movie are somehow way more glaring, I feel, than in a regular movie because the, the whole hook of this is you're watching reality, you know? Uh, have, you, have you seen Signs, that the M. Night Shyamalan movie? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, it's not a great movie. Uh, not even a good one, I would say. But um, there is a scene where they're showing on the news sign, uh, like the, the proof that aliens are here, and it's like a kid's birthday party, and an alien goes by, and that, to me, was like the one good part of the movie and the one scary part of the movie because you're, it looked just like it would look if you were watching 
footage of a kid's birthday party on the news. Um, I guess you don't need great effects to get a good uh, found footage movie scare, but uh, having good effects did help Cloverfield when you have that high a concept of, you know, uh, monsters attacking is the reason we're watching this found footage horror movie, but it still is that device of uh, a handheld camera. Um, My favorite found footage horror movie, (laughs) if we can call it that, where the conceit of the uh, film uh, is is pretty impervious to criticism is The Celebration by Thomas Vinterberg, which is a film about a family gathering, which is all covered with uh, camcorders. And it's an evening that disintegrates into uh, horrible truths about the family and a, a basically a giant familial crisis that plays out over this weekend in this very posh um, house in Denmark. But it is looks like home movie footage, and it's all been edited together in a fairly seamless way. Like it, it, it has several cameras that are running at all all times. But you know, you would expect to see that at a family reunion. Mm-hmm. But the found footage conceit is never really explained to you. You just are uh, you're presented with all this. Uh, it's like somebody's uh, edited the, this horrible weekend together as uh, as home movie footage, and it's very very good. You should see it. Oh, yeah. I wanted to walk through the phases of found footage for a minute. I don't know much about pre-Blair Witch and the celebration. That's, you know, turn of the century right there uh, or mm-hmm. turn of the millennium. But um, the only thing I know predating that is Cannibal Holocaust. Yes. Which I watched on the clock at, uh, at my job at Fast Company uh, some years back. I can't remember how. I think it was around the time Green Inferno came out, and I, ha- I mm-hmm. took it upon myself to watch that to get ready for the Green Inferno. But, yeah, that was something that was so convincing and so new to audiences. Uh, as you probably know, that uh, they there was a trial, I believe, in Italy, and they had to produce the actors to show, like, see, these people weren't killed. They're still alive. They're actors. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, so I think that's probably, like, the granddaddy of this of this genre. I, I never know how to pronounce that word, by the way. I know it's genre. genre? Ge- yeah, I always <laughs> am self-conscious, and I feel like I say it wrong every single time. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that was kind of, like, the, the 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 granddaddy of the of it and then uh Blair Witch kind of unlocked its possibilities hugely uh reliant on marketing early internet marketing and it was a big deal um I actually talked to Eduardo Sanchez one of the directors of that movie and he says he regrets the shaky cam of it because uh they just got you know, kind of carried away. They wanted it to feel real, but in retrospect, he thought that made it a little too real. Um, It made it, you know, shitty. Like, in real life, if you were filming something and a horror movie happened to you, you would film it so shitty. (laughs) So uh, it makes sense that that's what they came up with. But he said, you know, if we had known that this movie was going to be in, like, a a wide release, we would never have done it that shaky. Um, but yeah, you know, complaints aside, it was such a big deal that uh, things were kind of quiet for a while. There was a little trickle. And then I think Paranormal Activity established surveillance 
as a means for the conceit, you know? Um, we're not documenting or chronicling something. We're trying to figure out what's going on with a spooky situation. Um, it also, in the, in the sequels for Paranormal Activity, it introduces the We Found Some Old Tapes subgenre of, you know, I think in, it's like either three or four. I, I've seen all of those movies except for the very first one, weirdly. But, uh, yeah, there's some where they find like a box of tapes and they're going through and that helps them put the story together. Um, and then uh, the most recent innovation in found footage is um, it started, I believe, with a movie called Unfriended. And um, more recently, there was a movie of the summer called Host. These are horror movies that take place entirely on a computer. So what we are watching, we start from the computer boots up. And uh, from there, we see someone get onto Skype. And then we see them rope in their friends. It is weird to watch these movies right now because now the movie... Unfriended stars a bunch of teens, and it makes sense that teens these days, you know, I sound a million years old, but it makes sense that, you know, today's teens would be all Zooming or, you know, Skyping or whatever the hell. Um, and now everyone is doing that because of COVID. But uh, anyway, yeah, so that seems to me to be like the final uh, innovation uh, thus far. Maybe there's one to come. There's a movie called VHS that uh, takes the We Found Some Old Tapes concept and puts a, uh, a really clunky wraparound story. Um, it, there is no reason that the people who are... Uh, they're looking in a house for tapes and they're filming themselves doing that, which is just so much of a stretch like there was no reason in the world they would be like we're filming our search for the tapes but and once they find the tapes they're all found footage movies one of them was recorded by a guy wearing glasses that have a camera in them for because he's going out for like a night on the town with his friends uh that works to me um others do not work but the reason i bring up vhs is because Ty West, the Sacrament filmmaker, he did one of the, the segments, and he's part of that whole crew of people, many of whom uh, who made VHS, and many of them are in the Sacrament. Um, the Joe Swanberg, he was on in VHS, or he directed an entry, and he also starred in one. And um, yeah, uh, that crew went on to do that movie, You're Next, which is a really good horror movie I'd recommend. But anyway, uh, those people all worked on The Sacrament. The Sacrament was done with the cooperation of Vice. Um, I guess they even got permission, with, like official permission from Vice, because it's all branded as Vice. And the film's conceit is that we're watching a Vice documentary about this um, utopia that has been built in an unnamed country, which I suppose is Guyana, uh, of a place called what is it called Eden something yes it, it takes place at a place called Eden Parish and one of the guys at Vice uh, like there's a fashion photographer who's a friend friends with the Vice guys who uh, his sister is mixed up in this cult and so they go over there because it's a possible story 
for Vice because it sort of fits in with their sort of edgy, immersive journalism. There's a funny beginning to the sacrament where it explains what Vice is. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea why they needed to do that. It made no sense to me. Um, yeah, and they highlight the word like immersionism, which I had never even heard that word. That is not my main takeaway of what Vice does. Um, for years, this movie came out in two thir- 2013, and I think that was before Vice had even, you know, it's it's gotten a level of respect for the journalism. And, like, you know, they have that show on HBO, uh, and, you know, they've put out some, some things that have gotten a lot of attention, you know, and respect. But back then, it was mainly like, we took acid with a voodoo shaman in uh, – Guiana, why not, you know? Yeah. And this is what happened. And that was what yeah. kind of videos they were known for. Immersionism is a pretty hoity-toity title to put on that kind of thing. Yeah, they they would uh, they would head off to cover um, hot spots and crisis zones and clown around with machine guns and, you know, they were they were playing the sort of the game that this movie starts to talk about but doesn't really get into, which is the blurring of the lines between reportage and participation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. There was a very funny episode of uh, Documentary Now that was totally making fun of the Vice style and just nailed it. And that probably yeah. came out like a year or so, within a year or so of when this movie came out, I'm, be- I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, disclosure, I wrote a couple of pieces for Vice when they were still in Montreal in the 90s. Oh, okay. <laughs> But here was one of the first problems that I had with this film. They frame it as a Vice News documentary, and it even has sort of an opening credits that looks like a Vice TV show. But as the film continues, things happen on screen that you would never, ever put on television. Not even Vice would put it on television. Yeah, I don't think we're made to be watching the eventual documentary they made, but we're also not watching... Uh, a collection of raw footage. So I don't know what we're supposed to be watching. Um, They do add title cards like meet the parishioners or meet the people in Eden Parish or something like that. I remember taking note of that. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem presented as a finished product that we're watching. Um, Yeah. But it just seems fuzzy to me that they would start presenting it that way and then just give up on the conceit. Mm Mm-hmm. Everything that you're shown in this film is presented to you as if it was filmed by the camera crew. Mm-hmm. But then there's a sequence where the uh, Jonestown massacre takes place and all the people are poisoned with spoiler. Kool-Aid. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, and so, you know, me, where found footage movies always take me out of the movie, I'm sitting there going, like, who's filming this? Well, that's one thing that. Um found footage movie, the the filmmakers figured out after a while is you have to come up with a good excuse for there to be multiple cameras. Otherwise, you're stuck with, you know, Blair Witch, just like a single, it's not very dynamic. So they'll be like, there's a lot of uh, horror movie, found footage movies where they assemble a crew of some kind. Uh, There's a a found footage horror movie about the Dietlove Pass incident called Devil's Pass. Uh, Rennie Harlan directed it of cutthroat island fame i'm Um, interested already it's actually pretty good it takes a while to kick in but if you know the diet love pass story 
then this is a fun wrinkle in that whole weird mystery. Uh, but yeah, so they have, there's like a student crew, multiple people in the crew have cameras. There you go. That's why. Um, there's a kind of shitty found footage movie called Grave Encounters. And that one, it's like supposed to be a TV show. And so, yeah, multiple cameras. And I guess that's what's going on here, too, is that they have a main camera guy and then somebody else is also getting coverage. And every now and then they're like, can you go get me B-roll and stuff like that? You know, at the end of the film, one of the cameras gets left behind at the compound mm -hmm. because there's a sequence where the Jim Jones character finally offs himself and the guys run out to go catch the helicopter that's going to get them out of the island. Mm -hmm. And the camera gets left behind. And I'm mm -hmm. like, so how does this footage getting in the movie? I don't know. I just, I find myself nitpicking a little bit because it's a movie that's presenting itself as a certain form with its own formal logic. And then there are all these holes in the logic. Yeah, totally. If I the mean, movie was a good movie, I wouldn't be asking these <laughs> questions. No, there was like one part toward the end where I thought they used found footage kind of cleverly in that there's a guy, cameraman, uh, Joe Swanberg, is like running for his life. He ducks behind a couple logs and we're like looking, we're looking, some gunmen kind of hove into view and... It looks like they see him, and they're like, and so you know, we as the audience just be like, "Oh shit, get out of there!" And by the time they reach him, they have reached the camera that he's abandoned, and that's mm -hmm. a little bit of a clever found footage use. But and then, um, okay, going into the final final sequence, um, he when he goes back and retrieves his camera, he says right into it, he tries to cover for what's about to happen with, "I'm just not going to stop filming." Uh, because someone should see this. Yeah. And so that's supposed to explain why he's still holding a camera while he's running for his life. But it doesn't, because you, your survival instincts would kick in. You would not be like, oh, I gotta get this, though, and like still holding up a camera. It's ridiculous. It just feels like it's an idea that, w that, that, that wasn't fully fleshed out, and that in a, and in, to a certain extent, maybe the filmmakers weren't even particularly interested in the questions that they were raising mm -hmm. in the way that they presented the movie. Well, yeah, a good question is, before you start making your movie, is does this have to be a found footage movie? Would it succeed without that? What makes it worthy of that? Why are we doing this? And you just can't answer those questions with this movie. There is no reason it needed to be. I mean, I think that some of the people involved had done found footage before so and that was and so they were just thinking found footage Jonestown is a cool sounding idea and they should have maybe asked more questions before they like really really got into it because uh yeah I don't know I I think just modern day Jonestown where Jonestown didn't actually happen but it's happening now that's it's an interesting concept but doesn't scream to be found footage no it's 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 like the um, yeah. At the risk of, my, of repeating myself, it's just that it almost feels like they needed a little bit more time to really think about this, the the what they were trying to say here. Um, and I guess this is my other problem with the movie in terms of my conscience while I was watching it is that this movie is being presented to you as if it's real in terms of being a found footage documentary and it's they use the name of a real news organization 
but then they fictionalize one of the most hideous crimes in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, so what am I watching here is the question, <laughs> you know? Well, that's... um. Honestly, I don't know how they didn't get sued making this movie. I, I'm actually, I, I guess I should have looked it up beforehand, because maybe they did. But I saw this movie around the time it came out, and thought it was okay, and forgot about it forever. But uh, I read last year a, uh, uh, the, what is it called? Um, the Road to Jonestown. By uh, I think Jeff Gwynn. Um, so I read a book about Jonestown and about Jim Jones, and that's when I realized that this movie just almost beat for beat just took so many details directly from it. It's not just like inspired by Jonestown. Like I think somebody I don't know who which survivor I know Jim Jones's kid is alive someone has a case because like mm-hmm. everything um there's a basketball team there was a basketball team at jonestown um the little girl handing a note that says please help us that was what started the massacre when uh i mean the situation's different here it's just you know of a, a vice team come to rescue a sister and that's not what happened in the you know at actual jonestown yeah. but once the media got involved and a congressman uh, to, you know, to help for folks back in America wondering if their family was okay and, like, trying to get their family back. Once the media and uh, a congressman went over there to Guyana, that was the beginning of the end, was when someone passed uh, a camera person a note saying, help us. Mm -hmm. It all Mm -hmm. went to shit from there. Uh, people who wouldn't drink the Kool-Aid or Flavor-Aid, as it were. Uh, some of them got shot running away. Uh, some of them were for- had it forced down their gullets. Um, it was injected in some baby's mouths with syringes. And yeah. all of that happens in this movie. So um, I remember thinking when I first saw it, like, you know, I don't love this movie. But, wow, uh, it really captures what a mass suicide uh, would be like, I guess. And now yeah. I know why, because they yeah. lifted every single detail. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, but I think that's wrong because it, it was basically a copy paste of an actual real world massacre. And um, it's effective as a horror movie, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it's pretty easy to achieve when you're restaging an actual tragedy. And, the question that I had while I was watching the movie was like, like about younger people who wouldn't understand that this was an actual real world event. I thought it was a bit crass to sort of just depict it as um, context free, I suppose. Yeah. It's uh it's exploitative, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I love exploitation. <laughs> it has to be the right exploitation. Um, it has to be more yeah. honest about being exploitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if this is like the thing that people complain about with true crime podcasts, how they're entertaining and all, but you're taking the worst part of some survivor's life and the actual death of a person. You're taking that and you're using it to sell uh, better help or uh, I can't remember the name of a food delivery service anymore. Right. But, you know, yeah. 
uh, yeah. So I think, I, I guess this is kind of the same thing. The other thing that was I was thinking about while I was watching it is that there is a critique of Vice's form of gonzo journalism that could be made in a movie. Like the the questions about the they start to go down that road a little bit. Like they're wondering whether or not they have ethically a role to play in this, or when people are asking for their help. But then again, they're reporters and they're really supposed to be objective and they're supposed to just be filming it. But like, you know, what's where does the line get drawn? Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's what the movie's trying to say about Vice, though. I don't think it really has any kind of a beef against Vice's form of journalism. No, yeah, it seemed they seemed to kind of abandon whatever they were trying to say about Vice pretty early on. I, I think mainly it was just a device to kind of ground it in modern times. Like, I guess they were thinking if a camera crew was going to Jonestown now, it would probably be Vice. And they just stopped there uh, rather than seeing if there was any other thing they could develop. You know, I I was certainly disturbed by what I saw. But, you know, that's also because I was very little when Jonestown happened. And I do remember being horrified by it. The scale is smaller in this movie because the actual Jonestown massacre is something like a thousand people. Yeah. In this movie, it's just under 200. Oh, yeah. We know that because at the end... There's like an explainer title card that comes up, which is so unnecessary yeah. because I, I, I don't know. Some movies you need to know what happens after the final frame. And even though it's fictionalized, them spinning out like the final bit of story is helpful. But here there was just no reason for it because it, it comes up and in very somber, you know, it says 167 people died at Eden Parish. It was one of the biggest mass suicides in history. And and I, it's just like, yes, thank you for the clarity on this fictional mass suicide. Um, <laughs> Roll and, credits. Yeah. yeah, so that was unnecessary, yeah. But when I was younger, I, I, I saw uh, two films that I guess you could, you know, semi-qualify as Jonestown exploitation that are, that, that don't, I mean, one of them pretends that it's not really about Jim Jones, although it totally is. And one of them is an actual semi-official uh, depiction of it. And we'll talk about the better one first, was this film called Guiana Tragedy, which was made for television, for network television, with Powers Booth as Jim Jones. And Ned Beatty plays Leo Ryan. And it's a very, very upsetting and disturbing film. Uh, almost too upsetting and disturbing for television. I'm surprised that it was on TV. Mm-hmm. But... It's not distastefully done. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's an incredible one called Guiana Crime of the Century, which was shot in Mexico basically right after the Jonestown Massacre that takes place in Johnson Town. And it stars Stuart Whitman as Jim Jones. And uh, the one thing about the movie is that most of the parishioners in that film are white and not black. But other than that, it's a very, very honest, uh, quote-unquote, honest piece of exploitation. Um, so it's bad, but it's still, you know, it's in keeping with the excesses of exploitation at the time, which the sacrament feels to me to be divorced from. It's a plot! They want to destroy us! Who cares if seven or seven, they want to leave? Can't change what you've accomplished here. There's no doubt in my mind... And it's better to choose to die than to be harassed from one continent to another. Congressman O'Brien's plane 
will fall from the sky. Guyana, cult of the damned. The movie that dares to tell the truth behind the most shocking crime of the century. We will give the world a moment to remember. A true revolution. This film, The Sacrament, doesn't really have that much to say about cults and why people get mixed up in cults, which to me feels like, in retrospect, a bit of a lost opportunity because this movie was made just before Trump. Yeah, totally. Um, It presents some of the confounding elements of cults. Like, you see that the sister, um, who they've come there to rescue, is very clearly scamming them in order to bring in more money to help the cult. And she, I mean, you know, any, uh, it doesn't matter how warped your, uh, your morality is, you know, you kind of know you're doing a, you're doing deceitfulness for some end goal. You know, you're not being this pure, innocent person, uh, who's, you know, awash in God's love, uh, over here in Eden Parish, you know? And so that's such a contradiction with how she presents herself. And that contradiction is something I'm super interested in. Um, So, you know, we get some of that, but it doesn't really play with it anymore. It doesn't draw that compelling aspect of cults out, how someone can sort of know what they're doing and justify it as like, this is for the greater good, but still just be locked in that mode. And at the end of the day, tell themselves what, like, you know, this is fine. I, you know. I want to say one thing about the sacrament, though, is that the performance of the guy who plays Jim Jones is very good. An actor yeah. named Gene Jones, no relation, a Texan actor who was in No Country for Old Men, but he's really good in it. And in fact, the movie gets a another shot in the arm when he shows up because he kind of embodies the scariness of Jim Jones, the sort of um, messianic sort of quality and folksy quality with this huge air of threat Mm -hmm. he's really good in it um and a little of him goes a long way he's not in the movie very much but he makes a major impression in the film that and the best part of the movie is that centerpiece interview oh absolutely yeah he's um yeah he adds a lot to this movie he is just the right tone he has the antipathy toward the media and he just has that down and just just has like that folksiness combined with you know yes uh, snake oil salesman charm and uh he knows how to use malevolence in a threat in a way that if you read the transcript of it it doesn't sound like he said anything that bad even when he's threatening uh the interviewer's wife you know, mm-hmm. so yeah, he has such uh, menace and charm baked together, and that's uh, that's what cult leaders have. It's been pretty amazing. Everyone we've talked to seems to feel that this is everything they ever wanted, and they all credit you for that. Oh, I don't deserve the credit. You come down here, and I'll give you a place to live. I'll give you a job. I'll give you a bed. These people, my family, my children. When you write this up, just know that you're dealing with their lives. Yeah, I remember when I was talking to you about doing this episode, I was like, oh, God, I'm, I'm, I resent having to compare Trump and Jim Jones because it's the easiest possible comparison. At the same time, it 
has to be said. Yeah, but it's it's easy because it's obvious and um but that doesn't mean you know it's not uh yeah it's it, it can be somewhat tedious to talk about something so obvious but at the same time you know i guess it merits some discussion my uh as i i, I told you offline uh before my favorite comparison point with this is that at jonestown um jim jones had a bunch of you know speakers rigged up so that he could just speak off the cuff and just, you know, blast out his thoughts at all hours of time, uh, all hours of day. And a lot of people actually on his side and who loved him very much would be thankful whenever every now and then the speaker would get knocked out and he couldn't just say whatever was on his mind. And that just so reminds me of Trump and Twitter. It's just, it was his platform to just uh, either attack people or do stream of consciousness uh narrations of his tv watching day and uh yeah it was it um uh, i think it yeah just helped people feel connected to him in the same way that it, it helped him accomplish what jim jones wanted to accomplish yeah and you know and to say nothing of the giant body count of the <laughs> casualties of the virus and the disinformation and even when trump had his own run in with it you know he was saying it'll be you know it's beautiful i'm gonna i'm getting treatment that i hope that you'll all take the way that he t- uh hawked hydroxychloroquine oh god and told people to drink bleach <laughs> yeah. you know it's jim jones kind of you can't help but think of jim jones unfortunately yeah um and one thing they get across about him uh, about jim jones in the movie that i think also applies to trump is just he lies like nothing to his own people a lot and you know it's i'm not breaking new ground by saying that but in the movie even we're at the end these people are about to die uh because of him and he's telling them take your drink and lay down your life with the family it's a bitter taste and then it's over there's no convulsions you'll be it's fine and then, of course, they drink it, and there are convulsions, and there's stuff coming out of their mouth, and it it takes too long, and uh, that's awful. And, yeah, Trump will—it's uh, amazing to me the confounding part of watching people who are under Trump's thrall or under thrall to him is how they love when he lies about the people they've decided they don't like, but they can't— fathom that he would actually lie to them you know they're they're Mm -hmm. like i think they know in their hearts that he does lie but he only lies to and about people they don't like uh or maybe just two i don't know if they yeah um and he they think that well he's straight with us though and that i think they capture that in this movie really well and yeah uh as you said yeah this movie came out just before the, the the Trump era just before he commanded that level of loyalty in his in his uh, in an audience, and also it can't go unmentioned that the same guy founded Vice and the Proud Boys. Yeah, how about that, huh? <laughs> I no. I, re- I remember. Um, did you ever see like the do's and don'ts in Vice a long time ago? Of course. 
Okay, yeah, so I had, like, the book of do's and don'ts. I got that around the time that I just moved to New York. I moved to New York in 2004. I was 24 years old, and I I don't know, uh, I hadn't heard of Vice before I got to New York, and I remember I got that book somehow, and I was just like, oh, look at all the cool street fashion, and listen to this really edgy, it's so edgy, the jokes and the commentary on it. And then I looked back years later on what was edgy, and there's like, they'll put like a Nazi uniform in the do's section and be like, hey, you know, I don't want to hand it to Hitler, but man, look at the cut of these uniforms and just stuff like that. And it's not mm-hmm. all like that. Some of it's just being an asshole, yeah. but uh, and being a sociopath. But uh, yeah, it was kind of right out in the open uh, before, you know, before he founded uh, the Proud Boys. But that was that sort of hipster racism thing where, you know, they say these kinds of things. And if you're offended, I was just kidding. And if you're not offended, I'll just keep talking. Exactly. I, I, I'm a huge David Cross fan. And, you know, I'm not like trying to cancel him here or anything like that. But, you know, I remember years ago when he got into a little tiff or a little, you know, uh, a thing with Charlene Yee, the comedian and actress. Yes. uh, When, yeah, she said that like years ago... David Cross, like, approached her at a party, didn't really know her. They maybe met once and just started doing, like, weird uh, Asian stereotypes at her. Like, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't think this means that David Cross has hate in his heart. I do think it was that, yeah, the the hipster racism uh, miscalculation where you're like, oh, okay, because you know how not racist I am, I can speak in the language I can do a bit that, like, wouldn't it be funny if I was racist and I said this to you? But it's like, nope, that's what you're doing, man. Yeah. No, I know. Uh, you know, I remember all this from the 90s as yeah. well. When, <laughs> when you're not sure whether or not it's a joke and eventually you realize that it's not a joke. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, no, it was something that I was thinking that, you know, that I think one of the reasons why Vice was shown as the news organization in this movie was because they were thought of as being neither left nor right. Yeah. The sort of the mean streak of the sense of humor of the magazine, which was actually what built the magazine, was actually a little bit more right than left. Yeah, it just didn't seem like it because it was kind of too cool to be uh, right wing, I guess. I always thought <clears throat> that Vice's uh, journalism at its worst, was was basically like those movies like Mondo Kane, those sort of atrocity spectacles mm-hmm. that they used to make where they would show, you know, people being beheaded and stuff. And it's basically to be uh, shocking, but not to really educate or enlighten anybody. Uh-huh. So maybe uh, having Vice be the camera crew uh, in this movie is like meta-commentary on the exploitive nature of making a movie that fictionalizes the Jonestown Massacre in such detail. Well, you can read it that way now. That's not <laughs> the way that it was. That's not the way that uh, Ty West presented it. But it, oh yeah, you can read it that way now with uh, with Trump being a bit of a cult leader and uh, with the news organizations not being able to stand in the way of it and not being able to do anything about it or covering it because it's shocking. Like it's yeah. a me- there's a metaphor in there somewhere. I think. I, I think so, too. Yeah. And to be clear, I think it would be the most generous of all possible readings to uh, project intention into uh, the, the exploitation commentary. <laughs> yeah. 
I guess that's what I mean about like that when I when I what I like about exploitation movies is when they're not pretending to be better than exploitation, mm-hmm. which I think this movie is. When Tom Brady wins Super Bowl number seven or whatever, and we're all supposed to be happy about that, I was very glad that I didn't have to hear what Trump thinks. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, man. Because he would have taken that as, like, you know, more proof that he should be president or whatever. But he doesn't even get to say it because we don't hear from him anymore. Mm -hmm. All presidents tend to disappear when they're out of office. And it was almost as if um, the only way they could do that with Trump was to actually literally, like, destroy all his avenues of communication. Yeah. It's interesting. With Trump, the equivalent of him disappearing— would be him resorting to how much we hear from a normal president, you know? And, you know, I don't want to say that, like, there's two groups of presidents, normal ones and Trump. I'm not saying that, but, you know, you know, we didn't hear from Obama that much. I mean, you know, he would address us, but his tweets wouldn't get circulated around and commented on and become news stories unto themselves. And that's, and I, you see that with Biden now too. He he tweets fairly regularly, and uh, he you know, but it's just not all about him anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's such a difference. So yeah, if Trump had gone to from what he was before to just someone who had you know press releases go out all the time, then that would be a huge huge difference uh but yeah like you said it's gone a step further than that it's yeah we just don't really hear from him that much now at all one of the things that i liked about the piece that you wrote uh, about him being the cult leader was that very obviously his plan was to do all that shit when he was out of office but january 6th kind of stopped that from being possible oh yeah he had that whole plan that he was gonna do a a competing rally a competing rally to and possibly to announce his 2024 candidacy to kind of make it so that people had the choice they had to choose between watching the inauguration and watching his rally. And yeah, that was just the the way he thought all the time. Everything was about him. Uh, one of the things, you know, uh, I enjoyed about writing that article was I got to make uh, a Poochie reference. I don't know how... In four years of Trump, I had never thought about before. But yeah, Trump is like Poochie. And that is, uh, <laughs> I whatever, have to go now. Yeah, that is what his absence has been like. <laughs> Trump died on the way back to his home planet. But um, but yeah, the whole like whenever Poochie's not on screen, all the other characters should be saying, "Where's Poochie? What's Poochie up to?" And that's what it was like with Trump. Just. Either he was making it like that, or he had inspired this cult and this fascination around him that uh, made it so that you would feel that, that people wanting to know. Joe, speaking of cults, are you excited about Zack Snyder's Justice League? I am tempted by Because you have to know what... Okay, because either A, it will somehow justify a fraction of the hype for it or b it'll be this glorious disaster and you'll just be watching it and cracking up at how many people 
very seriously, like, this is their dream come true, that this would happen, and now it's happening, and, like, it's, uh, you know, a big disaster. So, uh, for me, I have not seen Justice League yet, and so I would have to do that first, and so I'm not looking forward to it. Don't even watch the uh, Joss Whedon Justice League. Just watch this one. So this movie, all the fans have been wanting it to exist, and they basically willed it into existence. It's like a more successful version of QAnon. Mm-hmm. Like the QAnon people <laughs> thought that the storm was coming, and it was gonna like you know Trump was gonna round up all the pedophiles. Like it's they that was just as delirious a fantasy as the Zack Snyder's Justice League. Except <laughs> Justice League is now happening. Mm-hmm. It's four hours long. Somebody made a comment to me when I was getting bombarded on Twitter for making what I thought were very obvious jokes about the movie being restricted, or it's rated R. So I was making (laughs) what I thought were some very obvious jokes about how you don't have a potty-mouthed Batman, and people got so mad at me as if I was trying to stop it from being seen, which I'm not, nor do I have that kind of power. You were the final these boss guys, of this saga. What's incredible about these guys is that they have zero sense of humor, and they're obsessed with comic books. Yeah, comic books I, are pretty funny, aren't they? I think a and lot of people's sense be. of humor have, has been shaped by comic books. Um, I mean, I know some funny people who write comics. Somebody made a good comment. Um, they said that this is just like Brexit. These mm-hmm. guys had this crazy <laughs> idea. They're getting their way. Their mm-hmm. dreams are coming true, and they couldn't be more angry about it. <laughs> is, they are uh, just so, and and they're they're really really excited about this movie because it's what they wanted. Mm-hmm. They all have these weird. Um, a lot of the guys that got mad at me have this on their Twitter bios. It says associate producer of Justice League. Oh, really? Like they consider their? They all think okay. that this movie is being made because of me. I. I wanted Justice League to happen so badly that they decided to finally give it to me. Uh, so they're taking proprietary credit for the movie. They're referring to it as our film. That's really interesting because that reminds me, you know, not to make everything about Trump, but only because we've, you know, spent so much time talking about the cult-like uh, phenomenon around him. Um it reminds me of the, like, we memed a president into office, like the ownership that people took for, like, shitposting about Trump after he got in. They're like, yes, we did this. And that sort of mm-hmm. reminds me of that, uh, the Snyder Cut people. Yeah, it's the same impulse. Mm-hmm. Um, or or people were getting mad at me and saying, you know, oh, so you prefer Justice League? Did you know that Joss Whedon was abusing the crew and the cast? And he was, it was a very toxic set. And those very same people were like, yes, Jared Leto's in this one. He's the Joker. <laughs> they're just, they're just getting their way. But, but these are their final days of it being something that is not real. At some point, it's going to be seen by people and they're not going to like it. And these guys aren't going to like it either. And then they're going to blame people like me for ruining their fun. Yeah. I have a feeling that plenty of them are going to convince themselves that they like it. Yeah. And maybe years from now, uh, retract that and or, or have the position evolve or something. Joe, before I let you go, has there been anything that you've seen or read lately that's really struck a chord with you? Um, I've mostly been watching a lot of horror movies on Shudder lately 
and rewatching a lot of comfort food stuff like uh, American Wet Hot American Summer and uh, Working Girl and weirdly I Tanya I've watched a couple times lately. I don't know. I like that <laughs> one a lot. Um, yeah. But I think the last thing I saw that uh, surprised me in a good way was Promising Young Woman. Oh yeah. That's yeah. so divisive with some people. Some people are really upset about this movie. Yeah, well, because I think a lot of uh, people don't like the ending. And it's an ending you got to unpack, I guess, because you have to try to figure out what exactly is being said here. Um, I think a lot of people think it's a slight on the director's part. And I think that's not giving her enough credit. Like, she could have done a more... Jesus, I'm trying to, like, walk a fine line between not being too vague but not giving anything away. Uh, but, yeah, mm-hmm. she could have gone in a more uh, broadly satisfying direction if she wanted to. It's not that she didn't see a narrative path towards that. I think she really wanted to say something with this. And so, I, you know, I, it didn't end, and I was like, oh, wow, what a great ending. I love it. That seals it. This is a great movie. It wasn't like that. It left me feeling weird, but I knew I, it was something I could think about a lot, and I thought about it a lot, and I, you know, I landed on a place where I think I, I get what she was trying to say. And I may be wrong, mm-hmm. but any movie that inspires you or inspires me to, to, to just kind of dwell on it and uh, unpack it a little bit, I think that's, that's a good sign. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that was a movie that like, hit me pretty hard. Um, if, uh, people listening don't know what it is yet, it's kind of, you know, described as a, a rape revenge movie with, uh, Carrie Mulligan written, directed by Emerald Fennell, who did the second season of Killing Eve. She's not the greatest selling point in the world, but it's, it's better than, than that might lead some people to believe. Uh, yeah. She yeah. plays Camilla Parker Bowles on The Crown too, doesn't she? Yes, so. she does. So yeah, she's, uh, she's a hyphenate. Um, but one clever thing the movie does, and I guess, and it did work on me, is it casts, uh, a who's who of really likable, traditionally likable comedy guys, Sam Richardson, uh, who else? Uh, the kid who played, uh, McLovin in, uh, in Superbad, uh, I, I, Christopher no. Mintz Plas. I'll do him the favor yes. of I remember his name and I will freely admit it. Um, and uh, Adam Brody. Uh, who else? Bo Burn. They just she casts like a lot of really likable dudes, and you know, and yeah, and these guys are ultimately kind of rapey or full on rapey in some sense, uh, mm-hmm. and that's important to do, I think, because in real life. Yeah. Every every shitty creepy guy isn't, you know, skulking around uh wearing a balaclava, you know, ready to strike. It's your friend. It's yeah. maybe you. Their victims and find out the hard way. Exactly. Of what kind of guys they are. Yeah. So I thought that was a cool intentional thing that the director did and Emerald Fennel is her name. Uh and yeah, I, 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 it struck a chord with me, and then the, the next day I went out and I bought the book uh, Know My Name by Chanel Miller, who she was the one who was in that famous case with the, the Stanford rapist, uh, who was known at yeah. the time as the Stanford swimmer. Uh, and, you know, she wrote 
this victim impact statement uh, in 2016 that went like super viral online and um, it was a big deal that it really kind of articulated the what happens to the victim uh, in a you know a rape trial what she goes through and it just spoke to a lot of people I remember reading it at the time and thinking like that was cool and then just kind of forgetting it but um, she came out with a book in 2019 and it was a pretty big deal at the time it made like all the year end lists and everything and I, I was like I bet that's a pretty good read and didn't think about it anymore but after this movie I don't know I, I thought I should read that I, I, I kind of want to know more about her perspective and it was a a great book uh, I never thought I would say this uh, about a book from like a, a survivor in that sense I was surprised how funny it was <laughs> I didn't mm. she's just a funny writer and she's not she doesn't put humor where it shouldn't be it's not like you know you don't feel gross laughing at stuff but when she's you know not talking directly about rape uh, there's just it's uh, a really really uh, great uh, it's there's a lot of, there's some good funny stuff and it's also just a really compelling read uh, and more of that articulation of a perspective. Very that tricky to pull that off too. It, yeah, it's an incredible tightrope walk, uh, the writing of that book, I'm sure. So yeah, I uh, really, I got something out of it. Joe, it's been great talking to you. I, uh, you're, you're one of the Twitter personalities I enjoy following and uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you uh, for having me on. And I meant to say a minute ago when we were talking about the whole uh, Snyder thing that uh, the second I saw you, I saw within the first minute when you tweeted that about uh, Godzilla and Kong uh, finding common ground over Mothra. Like, I haven't seen Batman v Superman, but I know the Martha thing. You know, I, 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 it's just cultural osmosis. So the second yeah. I saw, I saw like 45 seconds after you tweeted that I saw it and I was like, oh, this is going to be viral. <laughs> so I was gratified when it was. And yeah, that was a yeah. good. <laughs> well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Would you be my guest again someday? Absolutely, Jesse. <laughs> well, let's do it again. Sounds good. Um, Joe Berkowitz, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Just want to say a couple of things before we end the show. I'm overwhelmed by all the kind words that I've received from my listeners in the wake of my recent appearance on Chapo. We also had a huge spike in listens to the show. Almost every episode got a huge jump in listens. And that makes me very happy. I'm very glad that the podcast is getting around and that people are telling their friends about it. Thank you to all our new patrons. And if you're interested in becoming one yourself and receiving access to bonus episodes... The link to our Patreon is at our Twitter account, which is JunkFilterPod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. We'll have another episode in a few days. And thank you so much for listening. Listening.